0: Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 52 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 52 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app, or on Stitcher, or on iHeartRadio, or on Google Play Music, or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is this? So I'm going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm my 23-year-old songwriter-slash-producer, but I'm also a huge 60-music fan-slash-expert-slash-nerd, and each week of this podcast, I take one song by one artist from the 60s and split the show into two parts. First part of the show, I talk about my opinion on the song and why I think it's so good or why I think it sucks and do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And then the second part of the show, I dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about all the juicy behind-the-scenes details on the track, which will include who wrote the song, who produced it, what studio it was recorded at, who were the session musicians on the track, where it was recorded, and the label was released on, um, what the year and month it was released on, the peak position I made up on the billboard hot 100 charts all that is in the second part of this show now before we move on with this week's episode of the podcast i want to let you guys know something uh something very big is about to happen with this podcast and it's something that we've i've never actually done before um usually when i do interviews it's Like I have one and then I don't have another one for another like three or four months or, you know, or maybe even more than that. But this time uh, it just so happens that I'm going to be doing another interview next week and I'm going to be talking to somebody that is probably one of the biggest people I've interviewed on this podcast so far. Um, He is none other than... Eddie Holland of Holland Dozier Holland, and some of you out there might not know that name at all and it might not mean a thing to you, but I guarantee you you'll know his songs um Eddie Holland was part of a songwriting and production team that Motown had in the mid sixties and uh they produced and recorded dozens and dozens of top forty hits. For artists like the Supremes and the Four Tops and Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, And um, they also formed their own label at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. Um, And in that interview, I'm going to be talking with him about who inspired him to write all those songs. And just his working relationship with the Funk Brothers as well. Um, It's going to happen next week um since he really wants to do this interview pretty soon and I'm going to be talking to him over the phone and yeah so I haven't really done any motown songs yet for this podcast so uh this is going to be really good introduction into motown for those of you unfamiliar with motown but who doesn't know about motown i mean Yeah, I mean, he is definitely going to be one of the biggest people that I'm going to interview on this podcast so far, so get ready for it, and uh, definitely look up some Supreme songs and some four top songs. If you don't know any of them by name, I can definitely uh, include links to their songs in the description of this week's episode if you want to listen to them, but I'm pretty sure you're going to know a lot of these songs because... Um, I mean, who doesn't know about Motown? I mean, they're they were a huge record label. So, um, I am very excited and honored to have him on my show, and it will be next week's episode. So this will be part two of episode fifty two, and then I'll put out the Eddie Holland interview. So, um, if you have anything specific that you want me to talk about with him, let me know. But, um. I have an idea as to what I'm going to ask him. Uh, The interview is not going to be longer than 45 minutes. So, um, yeah, so I'm very excited for this interview. I'm also a little bit nervous too, but I know it's going to be a really good one. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's group, which was Simon and Garfunkel. And one of the reasons why... I love 60s music so much is because there are such a variety of, of uh, songs that were becoming popular and that were making the top 40 at that time. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, a lot of times, especially in the mid-60s, on one Billboard Hot 100 chart, you could have songs ranging from folk music to psychedelic rock to funk to R&B soul to pop to country. I mean... The 60s was this huge melting pot of several different genres of music, and all of it was getting on Top 40 radio and getting on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. It was one time where the charts didn't necessarily discriminate against you, against your genre. I mean, it didn't really matter what genre you were doing, as long as you're selling lots of hit records. And I'm not talking hit records. I'm talking about 45 singles. And you are getting a lot of radio airplay all across the country mate, in thousands of different markets, and what I'm trying to say with that is that back in the '60s, there was really something for everybody. And if you didn't like funk music, then you could all, then you really then you could like the folk music, and if you didn't like the pop stuff, you loved R and B stuff, and you liked the. If you didn't like the psychedelic rock, there was always, there was always different alternatives for things that you could, uh, you could look for if you didn't like one specific genre of music, especially for people of different races and ethnicities. And um, Simon and Garfunkel, this particular duo, was actually one of the most revolutionary artists from the 60s. And I have friends that, that do music that is very similar uh, to Simon and Garfunkel, by the way. Um, you know, they were, they were a folk duo, essentially, and, the, and and a lot of my young friends my age you know, do music that's very similar to them. But what made them so revolutionary? Well, to be honest with you, for quite a long time in the 60s, people didn't really give much thought to the lyrics of the songs. Even groups like the Beatles wrote lyrics that were fairly direct and clear and straight to the point. I mean, how many times do you listen to one of their songs and after you're done listening to them, you're like, what the heck is this song about? Well, chances are you probably got exactly what they were trying to say in their songs and you didn't feel confused or left in dark about exactly what their songs were about, for the most part. And in fact, songs with complex lyrics didn't really become in vogue or incredibly mainstream until the early 70s. I mean... But this particular duo perfected the art of writing complex lyrics before practically everyone else was doing it. I mean, this is way before like people like Ellen John you know, and Steely Dan. And Paul Simon a lot of times used poetic tools such as metaphors and similes in his songs, plus descriptive words that were oftentimes confusing and difficult to understand. And he himself a lot of times couldn't even explain his own songs. I mean, that's not with every song, but that's a lot of his songs. Um, but that's besides the point. He really got people to think about song lyrics at a time when people really weren't doing that. And there was an influx of fluffy pop songs that were either party dance tracks, and yes, there was a genre that was dedicated to exactly those types of songs back in, the, back in those days. But it wasn't your typical instance songs that you constantly hear today. I mean, you know, it wasn't like that at all. Or syrupy love songs, either about falling in love or falling out of love. But the other thing about Simon and Garfunkel is that Paul oftentimes was his own worst critic when it came to his own songs. And didn't like the majority of his early earlier songs. And his relationship with Art Garfunkel is definitely a rocky one right from the very beginning. And the duo had somewhat of an on and off relationship over the years. It still continues to this day. Even though the duo had not performed together in several years. Even though, for the most part, they're still somewhat friends. But, you know, they've definitely had some, uh, you know, things uh, going on with their relationship over the years that that was kind of difficult. And Paul was also one of the first songwriters to openly admit that he was experiencing writer's block in an era when songwriters were often told to basically act like hit-making machines that had to be able to crank out hit after hit after hit without many breaks in between to meet the demands of major labels and publishing companies or demanding a release schedule you know, from, from them. And while Simon and Garfunkel were like this for a little bit, there were several things going on with him that kept him from continuing their working relationship for more than three or four years. I mean, he only put out like five studio albums, and that was it from 64 and 1970. And in this episode, I'm going to try my best to give you a condensed version of their fasting history. And if I skip over anything or miss any important parts to those who are familiar with their history, I do apologize for that, but I definitely don't want to drag this on for too long. But I'm going to give you a really good insight on sort of their beginning and how they got started, and plus the story behind Homeward Bound as well. For story, let's go back further than just the 60s. To get a better understanding of their history, let's go back to the year 1957. Both Paul Simon and Garfun- R. Garfunkel met each other in high school in Queens, New York, and the two headed off immediately. I think they actually went to elementary school together, too. Uh, I'm pretty sure they made a trailer before that. Um, but keep in mind, this was in the late 50s. So at this time, rock and roll and teeny bopper pop and doo-wop were all the rage at this time, and folk music had not become in vogue yet. So when they first got together, what kind of music do you think they were aiming to create? Well, for starters, at this time, they weren't even calling themselves Simon and Garfunkel yet. Their original name, before they even found their folk music, was the same name of the classic Hanna-Barbera cartoon of the 40s and 50s. Yep, they originally called themselves Tom and Jerry. And at this time, they were completely taken by the sound of the Everly Brothers, everything from their acoustic guitar playing to their close tight-knit harmonies, which an obscure Liverpool quartet known as the Quarrymen became also big fans of the Everly Brothers, And that group later morphed into the Beatles. That's a whole nother story for a whole nother podcast. And with their duo sound created by the two of them, they made the rounds in New York in the late 50s, which at the time was the music industry capital of the world. I mean, everything was happening in New York at that time. And knocked on the doors of all the major record labels and publishing companies based in the Brill Building at the time, which again was a building located on 1619 Broadway um, and 1650 Broadway too. And at the time, there were around 50 publishers and record labels in New York, so it was pretty big at that time. And when they were able to find themselves a record deal for a small indie label, they released a f- their first official single under the name Hey Schoolgirl," And it's funny because they actually, it actually rewrote the lyrics to an Everly Brothers song called Hey Doll Baby. So... You can definitely hear the Evelyn Brothers' influence on Simon and Garfunkel in their very early songs. And their label head was actually able to bribe a local New York DJ to give it some airplay in the era of Paola before the authorities caught wind of that and arrested DJs for doing that. And the single did fairly well on the charts, sold over about 100,000 copies, but, and a piece number 49 too on the charts. But the next batch of singles failed after Hey School Girl came out. And it was then that the duo split up. By the time they had become adults and they were out of high school, and all of a sudden they were feeling the pressures of adulthood upon them, so Paul went to school for a completely different profession other than music, and so did art. But at this time, they were still able to release music under their own solo artist aliases, And one single that Paul put out, One Without Art, angered him because he considered it betrayal that Paul went behind his back and recorded the single without him or his knowledge. And this was just the beginning of what would become a rocky road for the duo in future years of their career. And it was also during this time that Paul started recording demos with Carole King and he developed the alias of Jerry Landis and started to release singles under that name. Keep in mind, these songs were a total far cry from what the duo would eventually become well-known for. One of those songs was a song called Lone Teen Ranger, which I have heard and which sounds more like an early Jan and Dean song than what Simon Garfunkel would become known for years later. When these singles failed to do anything as far as national radio airplay or record sales, The duo decided to get back together and try to do the artist thing again in 1963. And at this time, they went into a completely different direction as far as genre was concerned. And in this section of the duo's career, Paul Simon was completely taken by the sound and the lyrics of Bob Dylan. He was fascinated by Dylan's raw and unfiltered delivery of his lyrics and his complex phrases and his tongue-in-cheek devices... He used to write his songs that he decided to write songs in a similar vein except Paul had a better way better singing voice than Dylan ever had at the time and he also wanted to make it into a duo format with his ex-partner Art Garfunkel. At the time Art was going to Columbia University and they went under the name Kanan Gar and actually Art has told the story that one day, Paul Simon, uh, in, his, in his red convertible, uh, showed up to Art Garfunkel's dorm and he played him f- five songs and four of them were okay, but it was a fifth one that Art really loved a lot and this was like in 1963 and the name of that song was called The Sound of Silence. They decided to go under the name Kane and Gar, and it was one night at Gerd's Folk City, um, a Greenwich Village folk club, that changed their whole life. And they performed those five songs in in this club, and one of them would become the duo's first hit single two or three years later. And Tom Wilson, Columbia Records uh, producer, was attending that concert that night. He heard them sing those songs and was very impressed with them, And through some convincing by Tom Wilson, he was able to get them signed to a recording contract with Columbia Records. And it was there that they decided to go under a new name and use their last names uh, to form a new duo project under the name Simon & Garfunkel. They might have been the first duo to ever use their surnames as a stage name. Tom also, at the time, was working with Bob Dylan. The first album that the group recorded together in March of nineteen sixty-four was released in October of that year. It was a commercial failure, and the name of that album was called "Wednesday Morning Three A.M." It bombed, and once again the duo split off. and Paul moved to England, where he recorded the whole solo album there in nineteen sixty-five. And Art Garfunkel once again went back to school at Columbia University. Tom was not eager to give up on the potential that this group had despite their previous commercial failures as a duo. And he was also, at the time, a very hot producer, having produced Bob Dylan's breakthrough albums, Bringing It All Back Home, and Highway 61 Revisited. And at the time, and this was, by the way, 1965, um, a few years after the album was completed, uh, folk rock was booming, and it was really just an incredibly popular genre of music. And traditional folk songs were being heard in a whole new way with a full band versus just an acoustic guitar and a lead vocal. And knowing this, he decided to take a chance on one of the songs Paul had previously recorded acoustically with Art on Wednesday morning 3 a.m. before they had split up. He took that track and booked a full band session and hired a group of studio musicians to overdub a guitar, bass, and drums on that track. And by the way, there's musicians who were Al Groni, and Vinnie Bell on guitar, Joe Mack on bass, and Bobby Gregg on drums. He did that in June 1965 and released the song as a single. And in September 1965, and that's when he released it. And he did this all without the knowledge of Paul or Art. They had no clue that this was happening. And the single eventually climbed to number one in January 1966, fighting against the Beatles' We Can Work It Out. When Paul found out that the song had been released, he and R quickly got back together as the song was climbing the charts in late 65, early 66, and the rest was history. Paul did not like the finished mix of The Sound of Silence with those added overdubbed guitar, bass, and drums at all, but it did become the first uh, hit for the group, and it became the first hit song that they ever had. But moving on, let's talk about the history behind the specific song, because Homeward Bound was the second official Simon and Garfunkel single released, and it was during the recording sessions for an album Columbia was trying to rush release to capitalize on the success of The Sound of Silence. See, Sound of Silence was climbing up the charts at the time, and it was becoming really, really popular, and Columbia had need, need to put out an album to go along with that single, and Probably the most interesting thing about this song is how true the lyrics of the songs were uh, to Paul Simon's life at that time. See, he wrote the song while he was still living in England in the city called Essex. And while he was living there, he met a girl named Kathy Chitty, who was a door lady at a club Paul was performing at called the Railway Hotel in Brentwood. Um, Paul would later go on to write many famous Simon Garfunkel songs about her um, including Kathy's song. He quickly fell in love with Kathy and she felt the same way about him, but he soon had to leave the city he was living in with her to go back to London since that is where he really wanted to perform. Paul actually started to write Homeward Bound while he was sitting in an actual railway station in England called the Witness Railway Station waiting for the milk train going back to London after just performing in Liverpool. And while he was writing this song, he wrote it on a piece of paper, by the way, he was thinking about how much he missed Kathy Chitty and those feelings showed themselves in the lyrics of the song. If you think about it, the lyrics to the song also have a double meaning because Paul was not only thinking about returning home to Essex to hook up with Kathy Chitty, but he was also thinking about going back home to the U.S., specifically New York, where he was originally from, in which he would do after he wrote this song. The track was recorded in December 14, 1965, probably at Columbia Studios in New York. Some of the musicians on the session had previously played for Bob Dylan during his Highway 61 revisited sessions, and these people included Al Cooper on organ and Bobby Gregg on drums, along with Ralph Casale on guitar. The session was produced by Bob Johnston, and the song was released in January of 1966 and became the group's second hit single, making the top ten in March of 1966. After that single followed a series of hit songs, which include I Am A Rock, uh, The Dangling Conversation, and Hazy Shade of Winter, and Fakin' at the Zoo, and just a ton of other hit songs. And but in total the duo put out five studio albums between nineteen sixty-four and nineteen seventy. And these albums include Parsley Sage Rosemary Marion Time and Bookends and The Sound of Silence and all of them released on Columbia Records and all of them recorded at CBS Studios in New York, Los Angeles, and Nashville. But as their music progressed, their arrangements got more complex and more things were added on to their arrangements. You know, so just piccolo trumpet and strings and, you know, other things of that nature and full drum kits too. But other than just the bare bones instrumentation that they were kind of doing in previously, um, one of the really cool things about their song is a harpsichord on Parsi's Sage Rosemary and Time. I thought that was really awesome. But the one thing that always stayed constant through the duo's career is par- Paul's fantastic acoustic guitar playing and by the way he's playing on all of his songs all the way from the very beginning on Wednesday Morning 3 AM that's all Paul Simon on acoustic guitar and you know so he's the one who came up with those gorgeous beautiful acoustic guitar playing on those records that's all Paul and even though a lot of times he also used another player such so as Fred Carter Jr on his records to augment his sound I mean that's all Paul And towards the end of the group's career, Art really got into acting and started to become an actor in movies. And he did this because the duo actually wrote some songs for a movie called The Graduate. And that actually got him really into acting. And Paul was more desired to start his own solo career as well. So both those reasons led to the group's ultimate breakup in 1970, even though that happened, when that happened, they were still selling millions of hit records, just like the Beatles. And in fact, the last album they made together hit number one on the album charts in Billboard in early 1970 Bridge Over Troubled Water. The duo reunited occasionally in the 80s and 90s, but Paul will later go on to have a very huge, successful solo career where he would expand his sound as far beyond his acoustic folk roots in the 60s. I mean, his landmark album, Graceland, was much, very much his own take on African music, which, which horns and percussion and more advanced instrumentation than the things he was doing with Art Garfunkel. Um, uh, to conclude this podcast, and sorry I didn't really talk about any of the other songs, but... I'll do more Simon and Garfunkel songs in the future, and I'll get more in depth with their other um, songs, other other hits. And also, um, the point I'm trying to make with them is that Paul was one of the, really one of the first songwriters to get people to think about lyrics for songs and get people to question exactly what songs were about lyrically and and use complex. Uh, lyrics that were not as direct or as straightforward as other songs before that and there were the masters at creating acoustic guitar driven folk music and many they have influenced many young folk musicians today and i can say this because a lot of uh you know uh, musicians these days have been influenced by them and you know, there are a lot of, you know, young folk musicians in today's world that make music that is very acoustic guitar driven and very much influenced by Simon and Garfunkel. And some of these artists included my friends, which is Tavia Grubbs and Seneca Petty and Tyler Fortifield and friends of that nature. But, you know, whether or not they've heard their stuff or not, they were all influenced by Simon and Garfunkel. So that concludes part two of episode number 52 of my 6 You Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and if you really found out some cool, interesting information about Simon and Garfunkel from listening to this podcast episode, you never knew anything about them before, um, please email me at samltwillie at icloud.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram at iHeartOldies and check out more of my original music at samluisvisa.net now before I end this episode I want to say that one of the reasons as to why I chose a Simon and Garfunkel song for this week and last week's episode of the podcast is that I saw Art Garfunkel at the Saban theater uh, last week on Thursday and that was an awesome show that was amazing Um, a really really good concert super funny super talented Um, I really enjoyed myself uh, seeing him you know, and the interesting thing about it is they actually sang a lot of the songs higher. Uh, and he, uh, he sang the songs in keys higher than they were in the original recordings. And I thought that was really cool. And also, um, get really excited and pumped for next week's episode of the podcast, the Eddie Holland interview, um, just to give you a little sample of some of the songs that he has written. Um, Stop in the Name of Love, Baby Love, Where'd Our Love Go?, back in my arms again my world is empty without you um it's the same old song i can't help myself sugar pie honey bunch something about you shake me make me when it's over reach out i'll be there in the shadows of love i mean he has written a ton of hit songs the list goes on and on and on and if you want i can put links to those songs in the description of this episode this podcast or you can research them on your own uh, you know, just look up any Supreme for Four Top song on Spotify and you should be able to find uh, songs he co-wrote with Brian Hong and Dozer. And by the way, he was part of, the writing team was part of, they were called Holland Dozer Holland, Eddie Holland, Brian Holland, Lamont Dozer. And yeah, so also, uh, the link to my podcast merchandise stores in the description of this episode, this podcast as well. And that includes, um, the logo, which is the catchphrase I say at the end of show, uh, plus the name of my podcast and my, and the logo is in tie dye font, with Keep On truck and Font, and uh, I'd appreciate it if you could, you know, support the show and check out the store and maybe get something, and, and if you do decide to get something, let me know by sending a picture of what you got, and also tell me how much you love my show, and also, um, the podcast um, Spotify playlist is in the description of this episode, this podcast, and uh, you can check that out, I update that all the time, include songs I talk about, uh, each week i'd really appreciate that and also i'd love it if you can please leave me a review in itunes and subscribe to the show in the apple podcast app i would really appreciate that because the more subscribers and reviews i get in itunes the more my show gets pushed into the new and noteworthy section of itunes and i really like that to happen that'd be so awesome so anyways so um i'm sam Limbs, and uh thank you for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast millennial throwback machine until next week please keep things moving